Welcome to The Page, the show that looks at literature from both sides of the page. I'm Mark Maynard. And I'm Karen Wickander, and we're the hosts of the new podcast presented by the University of Nevada Libraries and the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame. Today we're going to be talking about place in literature, and basically how Mark and I disagree how this plays out. (laughs) (laughs) This should be fun. Hang on. Chapter one, what we talk about when we talk about place. So starting off, I want to ask you, especially in terms of craft, what do you think the difference is or how do you see the difference between place versus setting? So obviously they they overlap and, and can be used interchangeably as well. But when I'm thinking about from a from a craft standpoint, place and setting, Place is, um, I I think, almost akin to style or tone. Um, It's it's an entire. um, It's something that colors the entire story. Setting, I think, is much more tangible and specific. So, um, setting could be right Reno, Nevada. Mm But place could be sort of the the gritty underside of Reno, Nevada, and its denizens of dive bars and um, you know the underground roller skating scene. Okay. Um, so I, I think place is more expansive and uh, I, I guess a little bit more ex- abstract. And setting, I think, are things that you can point to on the page. Um, there's a a great new book out called Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salases. And um, it's it's a book that aims to kind of ask people to rethink the creative writing workshop model. And he has a really interesting quote in there that I thought we could start with today. And um, he he's talking about setting. And we will oftentimes hear um, in critiques of, of literature, um, setting is a character in this story or setting is a character in this book. And he has an interesting um, look at this in that book. And he says setting is about what is noticed by the author and particularly by what what we call the implied author, um, which isn't necessarily the narrator, but is ultimately the storyteller. And and we don't ever want to conflate that with the actual author of of the book. Um, And so he is saying that oftentimes when people say setting is a character in this story, um, sometimes those can be settings that are places that are underrepresented in the dominant tradition of fiction. And um, people are almost looking at that setting as sort of exotic or, or different or other. Um, I don't think he's saying that setting isn't or can't be character at all. It, it absolutely can. But I think his point is that setting itself can be mischaracterized by an author. And um, it, it's a question of does the writer notice authentic things? And, um, you know, are they noticing what the people the story is about would notice. Um, if, if, you're a, uh, if you're a fisherman and you spend all your working day on a fishing boat, you never notice the smell, the fishy smell, 
right? And so that would mm -hmm. be an inauthentic mm -hmm. setting if somebody was writing from the point of view of a commercial fisherman and was always noticing. Fixating on the smell. Gosh, it smells so fishy in here. That, that's kind of that example. Now, again, with craft, this happens so often, but we're, we're already bleeding over um, from setting to character, right? Because right? you know we tend to talk about these things as different elements, um, but they're really not. They um, they're all part of the same thing. We we break them apart so we can talk about them, right? Um, so as a reader, what makes a setting authentic? Well, I actually want to go back. Yeah. So can you clarify what would be, just just to make sure that this, in terms of craft, is the same as for the reader, what, what do we define as the dominant tradition in fiction? Well, I, I mean, I, first of all, I'm not a great clarifier of things, um, but, but I believe the way Salasus is, is looking at it is the, the sort of Western and American tradition of white male cisgendered fiction. Okay. So it would be um, a, a setting may come across as inauthentic if a white male writer is trying to um, create a setting through the the eyes of a female black character. Right, right. Because it's what that white male author might notice in a setting, not what that black female character right. might notice in that setting. So he's not saying it can't be done, and he's certainly not saying it shouldn't be done. Um, he's saying... It's got to be done right, and it, it takes real powers of observation and empathy, I think, to do it yeah. right. And I, I think it's interesting because it points to me to a slight difference between place and setting. And so I think there's this discussion of maybe inauthenticity, right? So so. Which, obviously, if you are in a class and you're analyzing something, I guess even if you're just reading, you might notice that this isn't an authentic representation of a, of a place, of a setting. Mm -hmm. But then I, I also think the idea that in discussing setting as character, that it's most often in these things. Like, So I can understand how that works in something like the, the reader response and I guess maybe the contemporary to Zora Neale Hurston, the the reading response to her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is, you know, takes place in Eatonville, Florida. And, you know, she's in Hurston was an anthropologist. And so she's really writing about that place. And so this discussion of it in um, in what I would consider a very problematic term in this like exotic way. Right. Um, and, and kind of I mean. I think the white patronage system of the Harlem Renaissance is problematic anyway, but the way that that was held up as like um, just a really problematic way for black American writers to have to write about place so that it conformed with um, wealthy white desires for that kind of exotic literature. So I understand from that perspective in terms of ex making the place as character then becomes what the, the like underrepresented space. Well, but, and that's really interesting because it's it, – now you're talking about the the flip of that, which I think is, is equally interesting to think about, but trying to write – not necessarily authentically, but trying to write for an audience's sensibility. Right, right. And I mean, in the, there were – 
very clear instructions and directions mm-hmm. during that time about what could be created. Like I, I think it's interesting. I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent from what you were saying, but if you look at, I don't know if you've read Britt Bennett's The Banishing Half. No. So she had, I, I would say you could actually kind of juxtapose the way you have Eatonville and then the way you have the town, whose name I can't remember, that Britt Bennett wrote about. And it's almost like taking back, I think, some of that mm-hmm. so that it's it's like, this isn't a word, but you're D exoticizing it, right? It's a word now. Yeah, okay. And so that's why I got the PhD, so I could make up my own Absolutely. words. Absolutely. And and so I think there there is this sense of like kind of taking that space back so that it's it's not only just an authentic representation of place, but it's not um it's not being f- like forced upon the writer by someone else. But kind of going back uh, before my long tangent to this idea of place as character being tied to something that's not a dominant form of the tradition, I I think that there are lots of writers who would fall into that dominant tradition who still create place that that are characters. Um, I mean, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, like Emile Zola in his first novel, Tris Racan, I mean, Paris is a character. Paris is the driving force behind everything, and it's the environment that brings about all the choices that the characters make. And you can't necessarily just translate, you can't just take his characters out of Paris and have it work in another place. It has to be Paris. And so I think I think it's one way to look at it, especially from a craft perspective as you sit down to write setting, but I don't necessarily know that that's the exact same response from readers. Absolutely. Well, and, and that's what's so interesting and in, in these conversations are interesting because, you know, writers are readers too, but I think after you've done it for a while, you do start to read differently mm-hmm. and, and you start to look for what are they doing there rather than just being completely open to that transformative experience or what John Gardner called the fictive dream. Um, but I, I will say, uh, when I wrote my short story collection, Grind, which is linked short stories, but all set in Reno, I intentionally wrote Reno as a character. I mean, right. I, I right. started that collection with that intent and actually wrote a prologue that is sort of a character description of the city. Um, it's very narrow, I will say. So in other words, mm-hmm. I didn't try right. to encompass um, everyone's perspective of the city. I tried to encompass the the narrow slice of life that my characters inhabited. And so I think sometimes um, place is as much about omission as it is inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a willingness to say I can't completely capture the essence of a place because different people are going to have different experiences of that place. To to kind of follow up on that, um, from a reader standpoint, is place always a projection of the people in it? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting question. Like, it's why I think it's so hard to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at someone, again, when you look at someone like Zola, He's very much writing novels in which the environment, the place, directs, drives, 
it has so much impact on choices and behaviors and it can't be taken separately from the character because it's he writes a lot too about how genetics play into it so there's like you know this well he doesn't write about genetics but he writes about blood and so like what you inherit from your blood that drives your behaviors but he's very much like blood and environment are very similar to him in the way that he kind of approaches it um I don't think you can just take Faulkner characters and transplant them somewhere else. So I think, I think there's a, a pretty. I think that environment definitely projects onto the characters and vice versa. Is that what you meant? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, I can't. I think there are instances. I think there are definitely books that you pick up that are very character driven and not very place driven and those are the ones where you could pick those characters up and put them anywhere right um but it's it's interesting because even in that regard you know place can be expansive it can Mm -hmm. be like you were talking about paris Mm -hmm. but it can also be um a character's space so you may have fiction where it's not very grounded in place yet the uh the character's bedroom, their yeah. workspace or something like that is very specific and could only work for that character. Right, right. So there's sort of a macro place yeah. and there's also a micro place. Yeah, yeah. And, and that doesn't even get into objects, which are also right. part of place. Right. Yes. I mean, Edith Wharton's Custom of the Country, there is a plot. I won't spoil it like I spoiled things in the yeah, last yeah. episode. Um, that there is a there's a plot point revolving around French tapestries, and those tapestries carry so much symbolism in myriad ways because the symbolism is dependent upon the people who are talking about the tapestries or who the tapestries belong to at a certain point, and those objects are are. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how that object does actually embody place. Well, and and speaking of uh, Edith Wharton, I I teach Ethan Frome in my right. in my novel writing class, and the red pickle dish. Not to spoil anything, yeah. but but the red yeah. pickle dish, the object is it's the key plot, but like everything yes. kind of hangs on yes. a, a pickle dish. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I. I there's there's big place, but then there's yes. little place as well. Um, I, I'm gonna take us down a road that's that's gonna. Um, Is it gonna be fraught? Yes, it's okay. gonna be fraught with perils. Okay. No, it's gonna be a, a me road and and one that you and I have talked about. Okay. Uh, that that's not your forte, and I think mm. it'll it'll kind of segue us into our next discussion. Yep. Um, but I'm very much a, a big fan of. Western literature, yep, and um, that's that's lowercase w. So as as much as I do kind of love westerns, um, this is sort of the Western United States, and Nevada literature obviously, in some ways, fits into that, and and in other ways does not. Um, but I think it's really interesting because, um, you know, we. This this podcast is is um, you know the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame podcast and and we've honored Nevada writers, which is so interesting to me because Nevada writers could very easily be Idaho writers or Utah right you know writers of the Great Basin right right there's urban writing yep. in the West which is completely different you know a, a 
Los Angelino yep. is still a Western writer, but is very much not going to be a, a Willie Flouten novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, places that are real and defined mm-hmm. and then places that are, are completely made up, um, right. you know, from the author's imagination, if there's ever really a made up place. Hi, I'm Christopher Koch, 2013 winner of the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame Silver Pen Award and author of the story collection You Would Have Told Me Not To. You're listening to The Page Podcast. Chapter 2, Real and Unreal Places. So we were talking about this, and and you and I were talking uh, about this particular episode, and um, you kind of immediately gravitated when we were talking about places to real and unreal places. Yep. So um, why that sort of of differentiation? Yeah, it was interesting because when I was looking at the, you know, some of our initial outline and some of the notes, and I, I, re- and I guess I realized this before because since we work right next to each other and talk about our classes, we teach place in very different ways. So... For example, seeing the way that you were approaching place really from, I know it it bleeds over, but really from a craft perspective. And then I, when I teach place, I realized I it's like a combination of real and unreal spaces. So there's not necessarily like, and that's not totally true because I'll teach Zola Street so I can and we'll pull up maps of Paris and we'll look at you know we can you can you can use google maps and figure out exactly mm-hmm. where you know their 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 shop was in in paris but there 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 was this interesting moment in one of my classes where we were talking about neil gaiman's neverwhere which takes place in london above and london below london above is the real well quote unquote real recognizable space where you have herods and mm-hmm. the british museum and and these things that are you know, easily found um, and and knowable. And then there's this under, this below London that is filled with supernatural and magic and peril, like great, great peril. Um, it's it's basically it's a space where everyone that London forgets about. Mm-hmm. Those that's where those that's who lives in those spaces. And so I had a student respond. Um, because we were talking about the places in London and, and we were pulling up maps and pictures and all kinds of things. And she said that she couldn't relate to this book because she'd never been to London. Mm-hmm. And I was a little taken aback by that. Um, but then I, so I asked her, like, does that mean you can only read novels that take place in places that you've been? And she said that those were the novel, the only novels that she actually cared about that were quote unquote real. So she didn't have any problem with Game of Thrones novels. Mm-hmm. She didn't have any problem with Norse mythology and Asgard and Thor and Loki and all of that. So like fantasy was fine. The unreal spaces were fine, but it was the real spaces that she couldn't so connect the, to. The above ground, the real London she couldn't yes. get a fix on. Yes. But as soon as you went into the imaginary underworld, yes. she was she was golden. Yes, yes. And I thought this is such an interesting response. 
Because to me, one of the glorious things about place in literature is that it opens your eyes up to places that you haven't ever been, to experiences mm-hmm. that you haven't actually gone through, either to show you how um, kind of the human experience is so global, right? And and we're connected in so many ways, or to show you spaces that it's like, wow, that's so markedly different than our own. So let me ask you a question. I, I know you're a little bit mid-thought there, but it just made me think of something. Um, do you have a different expectation for a reader than you do for a writer? And what I mean by that is, let's say Neil Gaiman himself mm-hmm. had never been to London, and he's sort of speculating on London, and he's writing from the Google Maps. Mm-hmm. Do you have more of an expectation that the writer gets that place right or knows that place uh, just like that that reader didn't know London and couldn't relate to it. How important do you think that is, and can a reader tell? Well, I think <laughs> it depends on the reader. Like, right. if Neil Gaiman had never been to London and was trying to write London from it, the internet, right? then I think people who who live in London or live near London or have grown up near London, like, those are the people who are going to be like, what is this? Like, you... That's where you enter that fraught territory. Like, is London below going to have that pressure? No, because it's a it's a made right. up space. But I think the pressure on that space, it would be like reading a book that takes place in Nevada and was written by someone who's not been to Nevada. And, and everybody you, pronounced it Nevada. Nevada. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's there's just going to be this like sense of outrage of like, oh, how dare you? But I think that's also fraught because, as you said, there are. There are spaces, like if you want to write about spaces, people are going to respond to that. So that that was really broad and vague. So let me narrow that back down. I'm going to talk about Therese Racan again, which was Zola's first novel, and it was incredibly controversial, and he received so much hate about it because it told a story of Paris that Parisians did not want told. It did not... <clears throat> It did not match their sense of what Paris, like this tourist sense mm-hmm. of Paris that they were trying to sell. And Zola was talking about kind of really the darker elements, like what happens when you are poor in Paris. Um, and then, you know, he combines all kinds of stuff. There's lots of lust and murder and awesome things. But he wrote this chapter. It's one of the most infamous chapters, chapter 13, the morgue chapter. And what he did is he um, kind of illuminated for everyone the fact that at their lunch breaks, Parisians would go to the morgue to see the dead bodies. And it was entertainment. And they took their kids. And they would be really angry if there were no new bodies. And there was this... It, it, and the way he wrote it, because he's he he's a naturalist, he's a, he's a realist, he... The descriptions of the separating sure. bodies, I mean, just the language itself, even now, still freaks students out. So, like, it's a, it's a really gross and amazing chapter. But the response to it was like, how dare you expose this part of us? And this isn't like, this isn't the beauty of Sacre-Cœur or Notre Dame or all the things that they're trying to sell as the beauty of Paris. And, And I think that that's also a peril for a writer is that you're always going to come across people who are like, how dare you portray my city this way? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, I think that's, it's a, it's an interesting question because I, I, I'm very loath to limit a writer's ability to write anything, mm-hmm. but I think there's an obligation, like you were talking about earlier about authenticity, there's an obligation to do your research. 
I, I absolutely. I think there's an obligation to do your research, and I think you do make a an ethical decision. How am I going to portray this city? And and that's something I struggled with a little bit, even writing Grind. Do I want to, if if somebody who's never been to Reno reads this, are they going to think? This is the essence of Reno, right? And I actually got, you know, some uh, critiques of it where, you know, uh, one person said, "I, I bet the the you know visitors' authority is right. so mad at him right. for the way he portrayed it." Um, so, as from a craft standpoint, when especially, and I I work with a lot of young writers, mm-hmm. you know. It, an introduction to fiction class, so they're their first time, and it's it's hard sometimes to write setting and place authentically. And so that's I, I thought this real and unreal was interesting because everything's a construct anyway. Yeah. And what you're trying to do, even if it's you know meant to be a real place, you're trying to make an unreal place real. Yeah. And what I always have students try to work on is if they're writing something that's set at a gas station mm-hmm. on a particular street, you know, I just tell them, Give the gas station a name right. and give the street a name, and it gives more realism to it. Right. Um, it, it is a really fraught thing to try to write about a place that you haven't been to mm-hmm. or you haven't been to often. Right. And so I think that, you know, there's that famous apocryphal Hemingway quote of write what you know, and, you know, everybody thinks you have to go get gored by a bull and things like right. that to right. write it. But he always wrote about places that he was intimately familiar with. I think he actually was a big writer of place, mm-hmm. even though he could kind of make it disappear in into character sometimes. Um, let's talk a little bit more about unreal places because in, in I'll just kind of start off with um, how I try to have students write in genre. Okay. So science fiction, fantasy, things like that. Mm-hmm. You're creating places from scratch. And what I try to tell students is um, what you need to do as as you're creating a world, because that's what you're doing is world building, is what you're really doing is setting some rules, some ground rules that you make explicit at the beginning. So if it's science fiction, what's What's the gravity like on this planet? Right. What's the atmosphere like on this planet? Are the people who live there air breathers? Are they humanoid or whatever? You set those rules, and then it can be really difficult, but you have to live by those rules, and your characters have to live by those rules. So if it's a if it's a planet that's, you know, a, a unbreathable gas, you can't have your human characters in chapter twenty three on the surface of that planet without helmets, right? Because you've broken that rule. So. As a reader, are you aware of the rules that writers set for unreal worlds, do you think? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I think it depends on how good the writing is, which mm-hmm. is such a cop-out, right? Sure, put it all on the writer. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's your job. Um, I, I think there's a level of suspension of disbelief that I think you can run with, Um I think it's really interesting now, some of the discussions, and maybe this is more geared towards like film and like there was someone who posted about the video game Assassin's Creed and that if Ezio really jumped off of a building and into a haystack, he'd be dead. And it's like, yeah, it's a video game. Like, who cares? Like, he <laughs> just let him jump into the haystack. But it's like, oh, if you were in, in 
space like Star Wars, it wouldn't blow up like that. Right. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also need to suspend your dis- – like they're not trying to make a, you know, a film that's accurate in that way. So I think it, it depends on – like, okay, you've read The City in the City. Yeah. So China Mavell. Yep. And I think it's such an interesting novel because – He's creating a real world mm-hmm. in which people, you know, there's these boundaries and you can't look at the areas that are in the other boundaries. And that the way he creates that, like, it's almost like there's this liminal space. And he doesn't actually explain in great detail what those rules are beyond you can't necessarily look into those other spaces. Right. And I remember reading it and the first time, God, you might have even been the one who explained it to me because I was reading it. No doubt. Probably. I'm yeah, sure. Because sure. you explain everything. <laughs> but um, but but I think I was actually because I'd read other China Mavell and I was so much more used to his kind of like more supernaturally unreal elements. I was thinking that like it was more of a there was more of almost a sci-fi element where the spaces were on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and that you, then you were like, no, it's obviously political. And, you know, it's like the government. <laughs> that and, must have been me. Just just the, the contempt in yeah. my voice, that <laughs> yeah. tells me it was me. Yeah. So I think with Mavell, I, I don't necessarily think he has to explain those rules to me. Um, I, don't, I don't think I need this set of rigid guidelines at the beginning of the book as to, like, here are the rules that these people have to follow in this space. But what I think you're talking about is interesting because it's not just the rules. It's there's something about the creative imagination now. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I've never had so many creative students whose brains work in such creative ways, and yet... When it comes to details like putting a street name and giving mm-hmm. a gas station a name, it's almost beyond them. And I, I wonder if there is some – or like a student who can't read a book about London because she's never been to London. Like is there something that we have thwarted with the unreal spaces like that maybe is so visual now because of – Absolutely. And, and I'm not in any way denigrating. I love the visual. I love video games. I love movies. I love television. Absolutely. So – but but is there something where there's like an an ease to the way their brain works because they might visualize the space in the same way they would they would visualize something in a game or on TV and then it doesn't necessarily come out of them onto the page. So it, it, and the page becomes a visual to verbal back to visual translation, right? right? And if they've been so stimulated by virtual worlds and video games and things like that, where it's just purely visual to visual, in in other words, you've taken out that translation from one mode back. No, I I wonder that too. And I wonder if, um, if that student of yours was playing a video game set in London. Right. If, if she would have Probably or, or would love even it. watching a film right. in London because right. we, we see – I mean there's the, the famous um, Steve McQueen car chase scene in yep. the movie Bullet yep. Yep. that's an impossible car chase if you know yep. San Francisco right. because he's you know flying down one hill and then right. on, on a completely different road uh, across town. Um, right. You know, the way they've edited that yeah. together in the film world, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting talking about the the Mieville, uh in particular because he actually 
he had a double challenge there. He had to play with two sets of rules because yep. that's also a, a noir novel. Yes, he was writing because he writes in every genre. And so yeah. he's he's got the the rules to keep track of of this imaginary space. He's got the sort of science fiction rules yep. to keep in mind. Yep. And then he has the noir tropes. The detective, that, yeah. And, and you can always play within them or work against right. them, but you have to know them. And so you I have think, to balance it and still make it absolutely. readable. Yeah, and he considers that his most readable book. He wrote it for his mom. It, it, so, it was a, an amazing book. No, yeah. it was, it was a, a fun read. Well, and I think, too, something interesting that comes from this translation into multiple mediums is something like Lord of the Rings in which the Shire is absolutely meant to be in England. It's based on their Shires. But now that it was filmed in New Zealand and you can actually go to where the Hobbits live, you know, you can go to the Shire and see where the Hobbits live, you can see where Frodo lived. It's somehow become associated with for readers with New Zealand instead of England. Um, And it's this... It's such, and I, I, it's fine. I mean, I would like to go and see where the hobbits live. Well, and you and I literally grew up on the Ponderosa Ranch. Yes, that's right. I mean, right. if you look at the burning map at the beginning of Bonanza, we were on the Ponderosa yeah, yeah, Ranch. Yeah. And it, it became an amusement park in our hometown yes. that had the ranch house that was literally built based on the studio sets. And then they would come up and film. So it right. became sort of a meta set that then became and, – and then they did a couple of, of – uh, movies thereafter that they literally filmed just on the Ponderosa Ranch. You yes. may have seen me in, in one sure. of those. What, okay. Uh, yeah, I know I was in old? Bonanza the Next Generation. Oh, I, okay. I was an extra. <laughs> okay. And uh, my mom was too. She actually, most of my scenes got cut because <laughs> I was on a rather large wheeled bicycle that I had trouble riding and <laughs> caused, caused a few stunt retakes and outtakes. But yeah, I'll go look for that. You should. No, yeah. it, it's yeah. a- available on VHS at, at your local video rental but I think establishment. going back to unreal places, I do think what's interesting is that that's why I, I'm very um, when when I teach real and unreal space, I'm almost loath at this point to call anything a quote unquote real space, because I think that you don't want to diminish in any way the connection that people have to these various spaces. And I think especially younger generations they can live in a digital space in ways that, like, my parents would never understand. Um, Though I will say that when my dad was alive, he came over to my house and I was playing Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, which takes place in Rome. And he was like, stop, like, killing people for a second and just walk around. And he, he knew, like, he could track where in Rome. And he's like, I've been there. And then go down this street and I've been there. And so he was like fascinated by the way in which this digital space and the creation, the game itself, like replicated a place that he had been and then he could recognize it in that. Because I think the last time my dad had watched him play a game, it was like an Atari and right. probably like, you know, it was probably <laughs> Pitfall. like Pitfall. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so I think there's something to these unreal spaces that it takes some magic away to, because I'm, I'm all about like, Let's have the magic. Weren't and, they using some of that game when the Notre Dame? Yeah, roof that was Assassin's collapsed. Creed Unity. Yeah, because yeah, they have like really accurate. I don't think they did in the end, but they knew that they had totally accurate um, blueprints. But that's interesting because then, where, uh, yeah, where is craft versus where is data? In other words, right, right. is replicating a space the same as as creating a literary space? Right. Because I I do think again there's. Inclusion, but omission. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so, I wish I had, I should have reread this before today, um, but there's a Walker per- Percy essay, which um, I'll figure out the title and post it on mm-hmm. Instagram. But there's a Walker Percy essay that he talks about kind of the the loss of experiencing place and that and at the time of course when Walker Percy's writing we don't have any of this digital environment we don't have the internet you basically have photos and postcards but he was saying that because of photography and postcards that we build an expectation of place based on those images so that when we experience that place for the first time and I think he uses like the Grand Canyon as an example he says it can't actually meet the expectation in our minds because our minds have been set by this like photograph, which mm-hmm. can be like altered or, you know, shot from a specific direction at a specific time. Like there's no way to kind of replicate that. And so that there's always this disappointment and that we need to actually re-envision space and how we will experience that. And and I think, I think there's something to that kind of... Um, Oh man, the way the way that we envision space now is so different and and the way that like it's it's like because of things like the internet, people realize how small the Mona Lisa is. Mm-hmm. Whereas before you didn't really realize right. until you actually went to the Louvre and then you're like, wait, what? It's right. that tiny thing that's surrounded Sistine by six thousand people. Has a similar experience yeah. when you see it. And and so I, I think it's there's so much power now in how we represent place because we have so much creative control over how that space can be represented versus kind of the real world. But back to that Walker Percy, haven't I mean, hasn't literature always fixed a place with some mm-hmm. sort of permanence when it's put to the page and people read it that way? Like is it sure. the visual element that's sure. so no, I th- no, I agree because I think, I think that like my feelings about places were driven by the books that I read. Like you know, like the Susan Cooper Dark as Rising books gave me a sense of sure. the countryside and London and all of that and Dickens and um, no, I think I think I think language drives that for sure, for sure. Well, Karen, thank you, as always, for a fun discussion. And um, as we roll into our epilogue, we have a reading list of books that people might enjoy that all have a strong sense of place. So we have Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. We have Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. We have The Books of China Mielville. Uh, City in the City is one that, that you recommended. And Kraken. Kraken is amazing. And um, some interesting books, Sense of Place, with a real sort of American West, Western flair. Um, Close Range, Wyoming Stories by Annie Proulx. That's the collection that the story Brokeback Mountain was in that eventually became the film. And um, Wallace Stegner's Angle of Repose. And that book cannot be mentioned without uh, mentioning, of course, the, the source material that he used, which is amazingly written by a woman, Mary Halleck Foote, a Victorian gentlewoman in the Far West, which is a really uh, fascinating nonfiction that was then turned uh, by Stegner into the fictional angle of repose. And can, I just want to add two more. Yeah. Um, especially in terms of unreal places, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. And then in terms of real places, 
uh, W.G. Seabald's Austerlitz, which is about a man's relationship with place and trying to rebuild his memories and his life, specifically from landscapes, photos, train stations. It's just phenomenal. Thank you, and thank you for joining us, everybody. Next time, we're going to be talking with Nevada Writers Hall of Fame uh, 2021 inductee Stephen Nightingale and Richard Neville about academic and creative writing. Until then, keep writing and reading, and we'll see you next time on The Page.